Makoto Katoa, and welcome to the Weekly Hoon. I'm Bernard Hickey with Peter Bale, our, our co-host. Hello, How's well, it going? Yeah, well, it was I had a, I had a drive of the of Dad's car last week by myself. Ah, well, with Professor Robert. Yes, no, yeah. that was fantastic. Um, a really a really good show that I listened to after the fact. Um, the wedding went down perfectly well. Thank good. you very much. And I had a wonderful time and I really appreciated that there was someone else to be able to do the show um, through the rest of the uh, the hour. Uh, it was um, quite an event and uh, lovely to see Wellington in, in good shape. Back in Auckland now, in Hoon Bay, um, doing our weekly thing. And I noticed Bernard coming along here, which you probably haven't seen because I think you've been trapped in here working all day, the uh, protest of the kids who are taking taking the afternoon off school to protest against climate change is being quite disruptive of traffic onto the um Good. onto the bridge and some very nice police officers were there directing humans and uh yeah and generally keeping the kids safe if only i could get in front of them and give them a good understanding a good understanding of what's happening in the um funding of a local government and central government infrastructure mm. i think they'd have a thrilling time as i uh, detailed why the government is not acting on climate change. And um, for for an example, um, at right now, the Auckland Council is cutting spending on buses, cutting spending on on parks and uh, walkways and cycleways to save oh, yeah. tens of millions of dollars, even though they have a double A-plus credit rating. And the government could borrow $60 billion tomorrow if uh, if it felt like it. And uh, if I had turned up in front of those climate protesters and said, hey, you're all wasting your time walking here today because a bunch of people in Wellington and Auckland yeah. have made a decision that they will prefer low interest rates and low debt over your future for the next 100 years mm -hmm. with actual action on climate change. Well, I was also quite struck this week that, uh, and I couldn't quite work out why they'd suddenly taken it up, but Radio New Zealand took up a story that we have talked about before uh, and that Business Desk, our old friend Patrick Smelly, wrote, I think, six pieces about with um, with David Frame, the climate scientist, talking about the forecast $15 billion that New Zealand will be sending overseas, supposedly, to a carbon credits market that doesn't exist yet, because we've we're essentially saying we've got to join the, uh, the 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 global effort to this and do our do our bit. And I still I heard um, James Shaw talk about it, saying he'd prefer not to do it. He'd prefer to do it all domestically, but that that just simply wasn't possible. Which is of course the farming question. But I just I just cannot believe that New Zealanders will tolerate the sending abroad of fifteen fifteen billion dollars for carbon credits, especially when we've just seen the destruction of our uh, fairly tenuous infrastructure. It was very striking this morning. I think the, the mayor of the far north talking about the um, closure of the main trunk line railway uh, because of a slip in Helensville. So yeah. they've got the Brindowins shut. You, you know, it's like the 1930s. That probably is better than the 1930s. That's better, right. better than the 1930s. That's where you had to go down to Oakuni and get on a wagon with the horses. Yeah, that's to get right. That's right. That, there wasn't the... even the Rarimu spiral. No, yeah, exactly. Uh, that is that is a good point, and that, that is one of the big Thanks, flaws in our climate change strategy that we have essentially outsourced the pain to someone uh, to a market and not including the abilities that we have in our um, balance sheet that we publish every month. It's a pretty shocking um, situation where our treasury, which talks a good game about 
uh, actuarial accounting and um, always thinking about balance sheet implications actually hasn't done a proper job of understanding our carbon liabilities the, to, to essentially have your entire strategy hostage to a market which doesn't even exist exactly. Yet. And you think of actually, you know, I mean, we're going to plant even more radiata for. I just, I, I, I actually have a, you know, David, uh, sorry, James Shaw is not, I don't think, a terribly cynical person, but you know, it may well not be him who has to do. It has to carry this at all in the future. You know, he, he's in there now, and he really couldn't. He really didn't have a good answer as to how they, you know, prevented being fifteen billion dollars because there aren't enough domestic levers to pull to, um, to, to uh, achieve those goals on our own. And uh, here's a wild prediction for you. I don't think James Shaw um, will be in Parliament uh, after uh, a month or two after the election if uh, Labor lose. And even if they do, um, I think he's pretty frustrated inside government and gets an awful lot of grief from the Green Party activists who say that uh, he's he's the uh, government's um, poodle and that he hasn't actually done much to really embarrass the government. And you know what? He they have this arrangement where basically, as a minister, he's not really able to no, criticise no, the government, exactly. and so they outsource the criticism to those uh, green MPs who aren't ministers and aren't part of the government per se. But it just doesn't resonate. It's not working, and at the moment, our climate policy is essentially going through without any opposition anywhere near Parliament in any sort of reasonable way, and it's a it's a massive problem. Um, speaking of emissions, yes, uh, which you is, is, are you trying to do? A, are you trying to do a segue? Here? A very, a very clever segue mm-hmm. uh, into two really big topics, which you did a fantastic job of this week um, in your email for the spinoff, in which you uh, dive deep into the two areas where there's significant uncertainty, conspiracy theories, uh, real. Um, and they're really they're really important. So, firstly, the explosion of the Nord Stream two pipeline mm-hmm. that happened last and one year. on the Nord, on the Nord Stream one. Yep. Oh yeah, they both got taken mm-hmm. out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, now the assumption, although not proven, is that somehow this was done by the Russians to restrict supply and to basically um, tell Europe that uh, they were the ones in control and they could do anything, anytime, anywhere. Um, but it's obviously the Russians denied it. But tell tell us, um, and this has been brewing around for a few weeks, so it's good that you've had a chance to actually look at the background and the detail and test some of the theories. Tell us what's going on there with this idea that maybe it wasn't the Russians, maybe it was someone else. Yeah, well, you know, at the time, uh, there was a a rather remarkable, almost immediate note from Radek, Radek Sikorsky, the former foreign minister of Poland, who said, thanks, USA. And we just thought it was, a, I thought it was very weird, but I've also been prompted to do this and, and I didn't do it immediately that this story came out, but TF Diddy, one of our listeners sent me a message and said, um, I expect to see your hat being consumed online fairly soon at the next, at the next hoon, because apparently I said on, the, on one of these that I would eat my hat if it proved to be the Americans. I'm, I'm not a, so what, what this comes from is um, a story some of people, many people will have seen. Uh, by the American investigative journalist Seymour Hirsch, who I've had a little bit to do with in the past, and he, you know, is a is a is a legendary character, uh, and and a very good journalist who broke the story of the My Lai massacre during Vietnam. That's you know been his sort of signature story. He's done many others, 
the difficulty is he has tended to go into sort of conspiratorial areas, such as um, uh, some of the questions around chemical attacks in Syria at the time when we were when, when the West was about to bomb Syria. And if you remember, there was a, a chemical attack which um, forced Barack Obama over the edge and ab- about to attack, but that was then declined. The, the whole process was declined by the British Parliament. But in this case, um, Seymour Hirsch is saying that the uh, attack was carried out by uh, a rather remarkable American um, naval diving service, which can t- which has the largest and deepest swimming pool in the world, and that they used the cover of a uh, NATO um, exercise in the Barents Sea near the in the sorry forgive me in the Baltic, um, more or less exactly where the um, where the, where the explosions later emerged, and that they used that I think in July last year to cover the laying of. Um, remote control depth charges um, down on the on the um, on the pipelines. Now, the thing that you know, the, the, it's only one source. It's an unnamed source. It has some credibility because there is a there is an argument to make. I mean, there's the trouble with conspiracies and these kinds of things is that one always goes to that classic um, thing of whataboutism, which is who stood to benefit. You know, who stood most to benefit. And actually, I think you can probably um uh say that both russia and the united states stood to benefit from this it's also the case and we've we've talked about this before i think on the podcast that um the americans had never liked um nord stream either the first nord stream and certainly not the second nord stream partly because it was they could see that it was increasing european and particularly german dependence on russian gas I mean, I still think that there was a an absolute argument, apart from the inherent corruption of Gerhard Schroeder, the former German chancellor, who's so far down in uh, Putin's pocket, you can see his feet coming out of his trouser legs. But um, it's, um, you know, the it seemed a perfectly sensible idea to bind the Russian economy so deeply to the European economy, and to the particularly to the German economy, that it wouldn't be in anybody's interests to mess that up. You know, and we think about you know it's, it's not that long ago that that we had G eight. We now Ooh. only have G seven minus. <laughs> you know? And so the you know the, there are arguments there, but you know Ted Ted Cruz um, was deeply opposed to Nord Stream. You know Texas Texas Senator, mm-hmm. total ratbag. Um, and you know I felt that was that was kind of a very imperialistic uh, he- he- hegemonic uh, approach. Maybe a couple of years ago when he was talking about that, and there was all this question over Nord Stream, and. The one that worried me most in this, and I can see it happening given some of the things we've got used to seeing with um, um, Joe Biden, is that at a certain point, Biden also said, sort of, come what, come what may, Nord Stream 2 will never open. Mm, that, was, sure that. that was the unfortunate one, which I'm sure he wishes he had never said, uh, and is one of those... Biden hiccups, which yeah. um, keep coming back to haunt but him. It's, but it's also the kind of thing you can imagine him saying when he's actually authorised. I mean, this is the difficult thing with it. I, you know, most people here know that I that I don't buy into conspiracy theories or I try to buy into things where there's facts. We will eventually find out the truth of this. And I also want to admit, as I did in the spin-off piece, that I am one of those people who didn't who believed listening to Tony Blair in Parliament that they couldn't tell the lie as big as they did about um, Western intelligence, which was, you know, part of it was um, was wishful thinking. But I always think about that guy, if you remember him, I think he was Danish, Hans Blix, 
who was the head of the UN we Weapons Inspection um, I, I still who never found of, anything. I can't, I can't think of Hans Blix without uh, thinking of that um, the movie with the puppets. Um, or do you mean Karen Blixen from Out of Africa? What? Which movie with the puppets? The, puppets? Um, the, the, the one done by the guy who's guys oh, South Oh, Team Park. America. That's right. Yeah. Hans Blix. Yeah. But you know he was he's proven to be he you know the only person to come out of that entire 2003 oh, yeah. invasion with any integrity. This much. is the problem. I mean, when you get it so spectacularly wrong with such huge implications, people don't forget that stuff. Yeah, and you have to win the cred back. Well, we lost. You know, this is exactly with kind of in a sense. I I judge the the moment when institutional or respect for institutions was really finally knocked over to a to a mm. to a ca catastrophic extent was that was 2003 tony blair lying or being misled or and publishing the dodgy dossier um george bush just being obviously completely determined to go uh and we were all profoundly misled and i think that you know i trace a lot of the mistrust about media because also the media was was deeply misled into that um I mean, it's, it's also important to know that there's this phenomenon now, which we're all incredibly fortunate to have the benefit of, called open source intelligence, which is, and there's uh, Bellingcat is probably the best known of the open source intelligence investigative groups. By the um, way, have you um, read the book they've just put out? It's no, I haven't absolutely yet. Absolutely spectacular. I, I, I gave it to my, my, my daughter for Christmas. Uh, oh, that's the sort of fun day yeah, I am. <laughs> yeah. I hope you've got her a VPN. So and, she she, and she loved it to bits. Yeah. It's a cracking yarn. Mm. They are doing amazing work. Yeah, they do. They do. And of course, there's military people in there because military people are really good. And so the Russians then say, oh, Bell and Cat's in the pocket of the military, which it isn't. But the the you know, people I respect in that open source intelligence, pointy-headed and Iraqi way have uh, called into question almost every supposed detail or fact in the Hirsch piece. They've identified that the Norwegian aircraft that he talked about could not have been there. They could not have done what he what he said said they did. So there's you know without just wanting to sort of totally destroy him, um, they've kind of incrementally bitten away at it. On the other hand, he's said this stands up. I'm not going to do any. I'm not going to do your investigative work for you. You guys have to go and find it. But the, the, the people who do this open source intelligence have reported that it, that it isn't feasible to have happened the way, way he says it did. But I just want to, you know, there's a germ there mm. uh, and I'd love us to get to the bottom of it. Yeah, and it is good to see that he has put it out there and it had quite an impact. And from my point of view, with my Substack hat on, he put it out as his first mm. post on Substack. Mm. And from what I hear, it has had a spectacular effect and uh the way that substack is set up has meant that once it's out there it can um be seen mm. without too much uh, uh noise and it, people can read it and have a look at it yeah themselves. and i guess just just to be clear why i'm picking it up now because um because our our, our friend uh, you know i don't have an edible hat yet and i will be waiting for a, a little more verification before i eat my edible hat if not an inedible hat but um the um the reason the reason it's important this week is that the the Russians have asked for a Security Council um, decision and an independent investigation on this, and that led the Swedes, the Norwegians, and the Danes, in whose territory it is all sort of, and G Germans whose whose territory it's all um, related to, to say that they're still investigating. Yeah, so we'll keep an eye on this one. I think it was really good 
that you were able to dig down and uh, look at the pros and cons and and look at the way it was tested. There's another one of these, you know, controversial issues that keeps coming back that cropped up again this week. Uh, very topical and and relevant to us, of course, the theory that COVID uh, came out of a leak from a lab in Wuhan. Yeah. Tell us about where we are. Yeah. And again, the reason I've, I mean, I think we've talked about this at the time. We've certainly written about it. Uh, in, in a sense, I have long felt that the, not that it matters what I think, but that the lab leak theory was almost too good to be true, that you you had this place with all of this virology work the um, so-called gain-of-function testing that's being done there. It's had a lot of previous experience with the uh, working out of this zoonotic uh, phenomenon of viruses that cross from other species to us. And the difficulty is there's so far been no proof of that zoonotic transfer, the the animal transfer from pangolin or um, bats or any of the other delicious uh, endangered species that are for sale in the Wuhan market. And so there is an argument that the Wuhan market was a was a centre of um, a, a centre of the outbreak, partly because it's possible that a couple of members of the Wuhan Institute of Virology um, shopped there for whatever bits and pieces they were picking up with their pangolins and so on. Um, and U.S. intelligence, I mean, this, I, <laughs> it was a slight revelation to me that there are, uh, I think, eight or eight or 11, I can't quite remember which one I put it in my story, um, U.S. intelligence services of various shapes and shades which have been charged with taking a look at this. So, but President, President Biden asked can them you, to go and take Can you imagine look them falling over each other? Yeah. You know, and so this, oh, this one way to get an, get some real, you know, aggression and uh, activity is the competition. That's right. That's right. Well, this this week, the Department of Energy, which of course is, is a very important uh, agency in the United States, partly because it looks after all of the um, um, nuclear uh, facilities and, and so on, and very sensitive facilities. Its security service has come out and said that with um, with low confidence, it believes that the lab leak theory has some has some validity. And then Christopher Ray, the um, director of the FBI, came out and said that they had moderate uh, confidence that it worked. I mean, they'd, they'd already said that they, they they had given some weight to the lab leak theory. What's interesting as well, and it's very important, I think, when you think about how this then gets politicized and weaponized with the Chinese, is that the almost there's almost unanimous agreement with the intelligence services that we know about so far that it wasn't uh, an escape from weapons, from a chemical weapons or biological few, weapons. Few, I think. <laughs> so a few, we think. So, and, and, of course, the trouble is the Chinese have been so um, closed about this. The WHO has been really concerned about it. That's led then to people saying that WHO is in China's pocket. And, and the problem is, of course, whatever comes next may well come out of China because of this zoonotic transfer with what we've seen with SARS in the past um, and and bird flu, so and and uh, swine flu to some extent. So we've really got to um, encourage China to be more open than than this. But I don't think in the current circumstances that's going to happen. And um, Ed, Edward Luce, who's a very good chap from the uh, from the FT, um, had a very nice line on this, which is that viruses thrive on ignorance, and that China's mm. refusal to cooperate um, is self harm. And I, I, I think that is, and I've, I've written a piece now for the. North and South this week, um, what's coming out in a month, essentially about this question of how do we deal with China? How we, how do we reopen this conversation? And that on that basis, shall we flick to Professor Robert? It is fantastic Hi. to welcome Hi, you. Hi, Peter. Um, Robert Patman from Otago. Um, we are both uh, ginless wonders today. We don't have any gin either. Um, <laughs> ginless? Surely gin, not. Ginless not chinless, ginless. Ginless. Um, and 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's lovely to see you. Um, we've segued from uh, the debate about uh, how COVID got out into the real world into this um, increasingly complicated, competitive um, sets of argy-bargy between the United States and China. And mm. uh, this week, uh, uh, we had continued rumblings from the United States that it's worried that China is about to uh, send some sort of dr drones or weapons to Russia. And also, and this for me was one of the biggest piece of news that didn't get a lot of coverage here in New Zealand, and that's that the Americans are behind the scenes, apparently, according to a Reuters report, starting to talk to their allies about sanctioning China. So using financial sanctions and other sanctions to do it. What, what do you think of where the Americans are headed on this? Well, I think you're right. The Americans, obviously, well, I say obviously, I do think they have pretty good intelligence. And uh, I, I think the fact that the Americans have publicly vented their concerns about this during the last two weeks is not a coincidence. They're clearly seeing some movements um, and indications of perhaps things being prepared to be sent and things like that. Um, but the, the warnings didn't just come from the United States. The warnings also came from the EU. The uh, high representative for the European delegation, or sorry, the high representative for foreign policy for the European Union, uh, Joseph Borrell, had made the point that it would be that, that that would be a red line if Russia, if China armed Russia, which is really the same position as the Americans. And China can't, you know, China's conflicted at the moment. On the one hand, it doesn't want to see the Putin authoritarian regime collapse because of a military defeat in Ukraine, because it fears that would unleash international forces that would not be in China's interest, a resurgence of liberal democracy. It would probably complicate plans to escalate pressure against Taiwan. Um, it would be a defeat for Xi because he's backed Putin mm -hmm. from the outset, at least diplomatically, not so much in terms of economic and military assistance. Um, but on the other hand, uh, China's rise to superpower status has been based on access to the EU market and access to the American market. And to give you some figures, in 2022, Chinese exports to the US market were more than 700 bi 760 billion. Exports to the uh, EU market were more than 740 billion. So, you know, I think Xi is approaching a position which many leaders face, which is he's got a choice between the disagreeable and the intolerable. He has to work out from him <laughs> which is which, because I think um, he would like to help Putin, but he knows if he does, some very tough measures will follow and could complicate Chinese exports to two of perhaps three, if you include Japan. Japan's another lucrative market for China. That would be, if that happened, this wouldn't just be uh, bad economic news for China. It could be a political crisis for Xi's leadership. Um, and particularly now that he's got this, of course, if we were from the Economist, um, um, Robert, we would we would say that this is a battle between Scylla and Charybdis. <laughs> anyway, I mean, I, I personally think he's going to err on the side of caution. 
I think he, yeah. I, all the yeah. indications are that he China's hierarchical view of the world, which she, she is a, a representative of, he regards Putin as a junior partner. And I'm not sure he's prepared to sustain the sort of economic damage uh, that's in the in the offing if he did provide arms for Putin. So I, I don't think China. I mean, ideally, China would probably like to covertly provide arms and not. No, what, what, what about what about the China um, peace proposal? Which because one of the aspects of that, that that's so interesting is the emphasis in it on not changing borders by force. And on and on, you know, Ukrainian uh, partnership and you know, Ukrainian Ukraine remaining an independent state. It's it's not exactly a sort of holus bolus agreement with the Russians. Do, yes, it, but it also says sanctions against Russia should remove. So there's going to be no penalties for a complete breach of the UN Charter, mm. and also the subtext of the Chinese position is that Ukraine may have to be prepared to give up some territory. And, yes, he is endorsing. Uh, China has restated its position about the importance of territorial integrity and sovereignty. But the fact that the party that's breached those principles will get away scot-free, according to the Chinese, is hardly mm. encouraging, and it's totally unacceptable to Ukraine. Although mm. the Ukrainian leader, President Zelensky, I thought made some encouraging noises. He said he was very pleased that China was trying to take this initiative um but he would like to hear more from them um the other thing that strikes me is that this is a i think a reflection of how conflicted the chinese leadership are about the ukrainian situation they this this is i think a bit of window dressing myself this initiative um it they don't present themselves uh, they try to present themselves as an honest broker but they're clearly lining up behind the kremlin in this initiative and the other thing here is that I think it's designed to weaken Western support for Ukraine. They think, oh, look, yeah, um, China's acting as a a power broker here or peace broker, I should say. And they're hoping that <clears throat> their trade partners like Germany and perhaps even New Zealand will lessen their support for Ukraine on that basis. They say, look, China, we know China. We trade with them. Now they're trying to be constructive. <laughs> perhaps we can, you know cut back on our support now i don't think that will wash for one moment i don't think germany is going to reduce its support it's the second biggest provider of heavy weaponry after the united states no sign of that being reversed if anything it's going to go in the other direction but i think it's a chinese attempt to do this there are i think the chinese leadership is quite seriously divided over this issue and she has rather tipped his hand in favor of putin so far He's in a potentially a politically dangerous situation. And he's got a big event coming up next week with a, a Congress meeting where mm. uh, a lot of uh, big decisions are made. Um, and uh, you're right, the, the ultimate risk for him is some sort of uh, disorderly you know, collapse uh, inside Russia, which again puts China in the position that it was in 1989, where... Uh, you know, the, the assumption is that eventually these sort of autocratic uh, Marxist-Leninist states dissolve into chaos, and that's the last thing that uh, she wants. I'm just wondering, Robert, where are we in all of this? Because uh, up until now, we've been quite happy to sanction Russia because we don't do much trade with them, and we, you know, haven't had great connections for a long 
time. But we are still trading our socks off with China. Uh, it is yeah. clearly still our largest trading Isn't it partner. Thirty-one percent of our trade exports go to yes. China. Eh? I'm pretty so sure not. we import socks off. Import socks. Socks. Off. I yes. don't think we export. Well, we might be exporting merino socks. True, but then there, there we export the wool, and then it comes back yeah. as socks from yeah, China. True. Probably it's the icebreaker yeah. economy. Ah, that's good. Or the Allbirds economy. Well, no, I think Allbirds are made in Korea. Oh, really? Based on the one, last ones, last sixty-three pairs that I yeah. Um, that that issue of, you know, how exposed we are. Now, let's say, for example, the uh, uh, United States gets actual evidence that China has supplied drones and mm. says to everyone who is its trade partners, let alone its strategic partners, right, we want you to sanction China. We want you to stop providing, um, you know, uh, doing financial deals with China uh, is this? I've noticed that the government, this the government in the last few weeks, has been very wary of um, jumping on this bandwagon uh, around, you know, China um, providing arms to Russia. We, how do we fit into all of this? Well, I do think we would be hard pushed to resist pressure if China took the step of arming a, a, an actor such as Putin's regime, which is and embarked upon an illegal invasion. That I mean, quite frankly, New Zealand's foreign policy would be in tatters if it carried on business as normal and when China was behaving in a way which was undermining everything this country stood for. Mm. So uh, we may face tough choices, and it won't be just Americans. It will be the EU as well. And, um, again, we have a free trade agreement with the EU, and... Um, it's not as good as some people would like here, but it's better than nothing. And, uh, yeah, I, I think uh, it's a really good question. What were the implications for New Zealand um, if if China arms Mr. Putin's regime? I think we would probably have to respond by joining in the sanctions. When did anybody last see an interview with Nanaya Mahuta about this? Oh, boy. Yeah. I mean, now that she's sole foreign minister, it was very interesting to see that she was in Japan, which helped me the other day with another thing I wrote for North and South about the importance of Japan. But, uh, you know, I think we, we're not really hearing enough from Yeah, I mean, this is this is symptomatic of um, a, a personal uh, approach that the former local government minister and current foreign minister has to um, engaging publicly, not just with voters, but with the media, um there's an awful lot of frustration around the press gallery about the lack of access for interviews to Nanaya Mahuta. There's a um a shared view amongst the press gallery and many in the political circles in Wellington that Nanaya Mahuta's reluctance to engage in a public debate was the um one of the main reasons that Three Waters um uh has failed so spectacularly in a political sense for the government. And, you know, if we are in a position where the public are going to have to be on board with the government and do something that could in the short term hurt our economic prospects, there is going to have to be someone go out in public and say, this is for the good of the country. You mm. need to mm. uh, step behind us. And I, I don't see anyone, you know, preparing the ground, 
thinking about how to argue it. It's certainly not going to be. Well, maybe un- we should ask for a conversation with her with with um, Sir Robert. I I would be happy you to. Know, if you think about it, I I sell apart from you know you seldom see a serious piece about foreign affairs in New Zealand. Yes, other and than that, other than the conversation, perhaps written by. Um, yeah, and and that's an, an unfortunate thing because we will but, need, mm-hmm. I suspect, to have that conversation if it goes down this track. And the other issue here, which is um, hasn't been spoken about much at all, which is that you know we could have a different government time and the national party from my um perspective is one of the few conservative parties in the um anglo uh american world that has a very ambivalent approach to Mm. china it still has jerry brownlee as its foreign affairs minister um christopher luxon has uh been remarkably uh sanguine about uh china's uh um use of its own political power. I think he, um, he wants to drive through Beijing with the warm wind and his lack of hair, oh. like John Key, doesn't he? Yeah, well, this is really interesting. At some point, the National Party is going to have to confront some of the demons it has itself. Obviously, the departure of Jian Yang as a National List MP, um, the uh, the revelations that came out of the uh, various court cases and discussions about Jamie Lee Ross and about uh, donations from people associated with the United Mm. Front. National has never actually uh, had some sort of public reckoning about its own shortcomings here. And the former leader, John Key, has been very uh, outgoing in uh, arguing in favour of uh, China's point of view on a lot of issues. Uh, Robert, um, you 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 were you engage behind the scenes uh, with people in diplomacy and in the political spheres on both sides. What's your perception of how national would cope or or deal with the pressure of um, America saying to New Zealand, right, get into line, and we're going to sanction China? Well, I think it's such an extraordinary. Let's just look at first of all before I answer that. Let's just consider what China may be contemplating, which is arming. Uh, an outright aggressor in international politics. I mean, that. I, I think whatever the National Party's feelings about China in the past, it's quite clear that such a step, and we should be, in my view, uh, the government of the day should be warning China not to take this step. Mm. And not, you know, it, it, we, we've had a long time association with China. It's a relatively small country, but Nevertheless, I think China sees us as a significant player in the Pacific. So, you know, I think maybe we're doing that. Who knows? Well, um, that's why I think we'd like, we'd like to hear from the foreign minister what the, what the yeah, priorities yeah. are. But it's very interesting. Back to your question, I do think um, national sees itself as on the side of business to some degree, and they may think because our share of our major share of our business is China, that justifies a sort of constructive approach there. One thing that really did make an impression on me was a few years ago, you may recall the conflict between New Zealand and China over the Huawei, the digital Mm. giant, which was denied access to the 5G network program, the digital program, on the recommendation of Spark and the GCSB. The GCSB recommended that Spark, I should say, not collaborate with Huawei. The reaction from some national party Mm. people was that 
Jacinda Ardern should go off to um, Beijing and try to apologise for any misunderstanding and put things right because the trade relationship was so critical. Uh, Jacinda Ardern, I thought, uh, reacted shrewdly when she said, we're not taking a back step on our core values of anyone. And we're happy to do business, providing it's not at the expense of those core values and interests. And I think most New Zealanders would be uncomfortable with us continuing to do business with uh, uh, as normal with China, if China took the step of supporting yeah. Russia's invasion of Ukraine through armed support. And it does rather underline the message, which, to be fair, both National and Labour are saying, which is we need to diversify with a degree of urgency. I mean, mm. it, we just have too many eggs in the Chinese trade basket at the moment. Mm. And uh, particularly now that... Um, oh, that's where our bloody eggs have gone. Yeah, yeah, that's... that's <laughs> we export, exporting all the good eggs. Uh, yeah. Well, you're yeah. a good egg. Yeah, that's true. Um, uh, no, and particularly now, you know, things are recovering. We're starting to get some tourists and students back. And there's an, there's an element of um, New Zealand who, who essentially say, you know, we had it good before COVID. Um, let's just go back to where we were then. Let's just bring in a few more migrants to make coffee and pick the fruit and um, clean the beds in the hotels. And let's get back on the all horse of um, uh, trading with the Asia Pacific and in particular China, which was away during COVID in that we weren't getting the migrants or the temporary workers or, or the, the students or the tourists. And, and we actually sort of survived okay with that. Although, to be honest, we also did an awful lot of exporting of physical commodities again to China. Uh, and uh, the, one of the interesting issues with the slash debacle on the East Coast. It's is, a very effective way to export radiata to China, though, is just put it in the sea and hope it gets uh, the yeah. <laughs> Bits of it anyway. Um, and that's um, that's that's one of the things I think we're just not debating it at all. Um, so I will put another request into Nanaya Mahuta, along with the six previous requests I've put in. As local Does she know I'm here though? Because she might really like me. Oh, that's true. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I really, I like her. Actually, I respect her. I, I think it's going to be very nice. You can polite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, um, I think we should possibly add though that on balance, China's unlikely to arm. Um, yeah. Ah, really? Mm. I, I think I, I I believe that the, um, on balance, China will do what's best for China, and China is although it doesn't like to admit it publicly, is where it is today because of its involvement in markets like the US, EU, and mm. Japan, and it you know to use that old expression, I think it knows what side its bread is buttered, and mm. it certainly. You know, it says all the right noises with Putin, but I don't think there's any. No. I think it's more right. more of a marriage of convenience, the relation between Russia and China. I don't see China. You're the one with the PhD, but I agree. No, no, this is true. This now, is true. May I ask you a couple of questions, Robert, which which amount to not so much a a a, a 180, but a handbrake turn, perhaps. Sure. The and it was something we should have talked about a couple of weeks ago, and we didn't, but it was just because we we're so cramming so much in, and we've got so much talent on the show to you know cram in. The um, recent um, expose by ASIO, the Australian secret uh, oh, yeah. intelligence organization of a Russian spy ring that had been operating for the last 18 months in Australia. Mm. I was thinking about that with parallels to the 
very effective infiltration of New Zealand by a couple of Chinese, uh, or one in particular that I can think of, the chap who became a politician who had been uh, an instru- a language instructor, I think it was, at the main Chinese mm-hmm. spy school. What, what do you think about this kind of mopping up operation that appears to be going on in a couple of places? We've seen Germany go in and take some, um, you know, there's been quite a, quite a few people arrested in Germany for um, working for the Russians. And, of course, this wonderful story in the sense of the British security guard at the British embassy in Berlin um, being convicted, I think, for 13, sentenced to 13 years in jail for leaking secrets to the to the Russians. There's a bit of a, I mean, you had your, I guess the linkage to this, other than asking you to think on top of your, um, off the top of your um, finely formed head, is you just had your um, security conference, your private security conference down there. Well, it wasn't private security. It was just according to Chatham House rules. Yes, yes. Rethinking New Zealand's national security. Um, which may be quite appropriate given what's going on in this tumultuous world. Um, yeah, it seems that we are learning more and more how ambitious the the reach of the Russian intelligence services and the FSB is. And, of course, this is a government led by a former intelligence operative in which about a third of the top personnel have some sort of intelligence background. So we shouldn't be surprised that they take intelligence very seriously, I think. What is interesting, though, is um, that it does seem to reach into all of the developed countries, including the United States, Germany um, and Australia and possibly elsewhere, maybe even New Zealand. I mean, the thing about this is once you make one arrest, it can have a domino effect because Mm -hmm. people then have to come well not they don't have to come clean they try to mitigate the consequences of being arrested for being an intelligence operative for russia by leaking information about others so you begin mm. to get a what appears to be an escalation in the situation whereas in fact this may may have been going on for a long time uh, i don't think we should be surprised russia since mr putin has been leader has always seen the west essentially as an adversary mm. we've become more conscious of that uh, since the annexation of Crimea, but it's been going on a long time. And have you uh, read Fiona Hill's book yet, Robert? Sorry, you, have you read Fiona Hill's book, the the former U- U.S. national security advisor who was? I haven't, up, but she's excellent up. and very thoughtful yeah. and, and and extremely, I think, insightful. Um, yeah, I mean, I haven't read it. I'm sorry, but her, it, her, her view is very much that Putin is running an imperialistic agenda on russia that it is about russian expansionism that you know uh kazakhstan um um you know is next kind of thing the baltics it's all within it's all with yeah i mean the sort of corollary to this though peter is that if you run an authoritarian i mean since putin's been in power in 2000 he has steadily concentrated ever greater power in his own Mm. hands politically and financially as well as his entourage and to do that, you do need a foreign enemy. You do need, I mean, if you're eroding democracy, um, detaining, in some cases, killing political opponents and journalists who are independent, then all that can cause serious ructions. But those ructions can be mitigated if you can point to a nasty enemy, a monster at the gates, yeah, a foreign yeah, adversary. Absolutely. And I think the mindset of many people in the FSB, I think there's a lot of continuity with the, it's predecessor, the KGB during the Cold War. 
I mean, after all, Putin is leader of a country, but many and some of his closest colleagues, like himself, were key operatives in the FSB and in the KGB. In, in, in so that they have a, a mindset that's not necessarily changed too much. Yeah, it was and, also um, noticeable. They see the US, they see the West as the enemy. Yeah, it was also noticeable this week, Robin. I'm thinking of I'm thinking of a couple of what you might call a high window watch. Uh, the next candidate for a, to, to fall out of a window. Um, Oleg Deripaska, the, the nickel um, oligarch in Russia, came out today at a at a conference, or probably yesterday now, I think, at a at a conference in um, in Siberia and said that Russia is really hurting from sanctions, that there's serious pressure from the sanctions, and that um, they would need additional foreign investors to come in because there was going to be going to be a really bad deficit. Um, and you know, he says. Uh, we thought we were a European country, and now for the next twenty-five years, we will think more about our Asian past. And I, I, don't, and I think that's a very interesting step. And I don't know whether you saw also, uh, Robert, that and it fits with the whole Bill Browder. Um, many people we've talked about Bill Browder before, the yeah. sort of number one enemy in the West. Um, the Swiss um, police, the Swiss authorities, this week arrested, I think, half a dozen um, bagmen of Putin's in in Switzerland. All related, in fact, it came out of the Panama Papers oh, originally, oh. but it goes to the. It's the, they're connected to the um, cellist, the cellist, who yes. is a great friend of personal um, friend of Putin's, and it is and it is the godfather of his um, daughter, yeah, uh, and and um, his his main um, his main business colleague. So yeah. I think we we might see some of these um, threads and you know hidden. You know, uh, what did I read today that that. Putin earns officially earns a hundred thousand Swiss francs as his equivalent as of his salary, uh, and yet Bill Browder says, of course, he's taken something like a trillion dollars out of the Russian. Yeah, no. So it's um, it's it's really uh, heating up over there. Uh, just mm. on in the European sphere again, uh, Robert. Just to pivot uh, towards a couple of big bits of news this week. Um, the United Kingdom and the European Union came out all friendly again and said they'd just mm. done a deal to uh, smooth the way for trade between uh, the European Union in the form of Ireland and Britain in the form of Britain, but with Northern Ireland stuck on the end of Ireland mm. in some sort of vague, vague uh, border in the sea. Um, what did you make of this, uh, you know, piece in our time <laughs> announcement from... Well, from- I, I think the British Prime Minister could find himself, although he has... I think made a, a constructive effort to deal with this situation with the EU, and as a result, it you know the irony is that that may be deeply resented by groups like the European Research Group within the Conservative Party, ardent pro Brexiteers. They may, they, you know, uh, there's already been rumblings that the Prime Minister has caved in. Mm. So uh, we have to watch this space. Um, I, I think that the EU were delighted to try to work out a deal with the new British Prime Minister because there's no... I think they basically had given up on Johnson. And, Mm. um, yeah. I also see some reports out of Politico in Europe that Britain is about to join the CPTPP uh, and that in the next couple of weeks we'll get something out of that. Um, Well, this deal will help. Yeah. Because I think New Zealand signalled very, very subtly that if... Britain broke international law in relation to the Good Friday Accord, uh, then 
would be very hard pushed to support British yeah. uh, progress. And you may have seen that um, Boris Johnson, who hasn't been in Parliament for a couple of weeks, despite all the discussion about this, said that he would find very hard to vote for it. And then he sort of said, you know, that we we really need the courage to go back to what I proposed before, which was written on the back of an envelope. You know, he he is not the man, a master of detail. No. Um, No, so we'll watch this space, um, particularly around the CPTPP. That's a a weird... Oh, and also we've got Dr Paisley. Do you remember? No, no, no. Yeah. Well, now we've got the younger, the younger Paisley, the younger, saying no. Really? Yeah. It's like a son. That's my oh. um, impression. But, uh, <laughs> the I British think, initiative um, is interesting in the Indo-Pacific, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, but mm. they've got massive problems at the moment at home. The British economy seems to be almost in free fall at the moment. So, oh, yeah. Especially when you can't get tomatoes. Next there'll be a quinoa shortage and we'll all be But scared. there seems to be... <laughs> uh, I don't. It's very difficult to measure these things from this distance, but... the talking to colleagues over there, there does seem to be a lot of people who voted Brexit who wish they, public saying they wish they never did now. Mm. Yeah, but it's a and bit like Project this. Fear, which was the great thing stumped up by Nigel Farage to disarm anybody who warned about the economic consequences, unfortunately seems to have under, Project Fear seems to have underestimated the damage. Well, but I think we've had enough of experts, haven't we? Especially you. Oh, no. Yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah, absolutely. They always talk I like nonsense. experts. <laughs> <laughs> no, we love experts, and we really enjoy your contribution um, this week, uh, Robert. Thank We're just going to um, segue into a discussion about Rupert Murdoch and Fox News. There's been some news this week, which maybe hasn't gotten the prominence in New Zealand that maybe it should. Well, it's a difficult story to write the one in, in New Zealand because it's it's it's. But it is it is quite shocking, and it actually has quite big implications potentially for not just Fox uh, Corporation and Fox News. It has implications, which I was thinking about this morning, for Rupert's business in the United Kingdom as well, because mm-hmm. Ofcom, the news mm-hmm. in the UK, is supposed to be straight up and down. It is. You know, by legislation, it is straight up and down. Commentary, you can just about get away with. Uh, and this is exact. So essentially, Rupert, uh, we, we, a, a deposition came out this week from um, Dominion Systems, which is the uh, voting machine company that is suing Fox Corporation, Fox News, for $1.6 billion for defamation. And this all relates to the, to the mystery of the, of, of the Trump, uh, of the stolen, stolen, um, Stolen election. And you might recall that Trump and his acolytes, or certainly Trump, Trump's acolytes, really, Giuliani, uh, that extraordinary nutter, Sydney, what's her name? Uh, Sydney Powell. Um, you know, we're all talking about uh, um, Victor Chavez having been involved with it, Venezuelan connections, um, chips being sent to China, sending data, blah, 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 blah. And were there all space banned. lasers too? And it's no, there weren't the, the Jewish space lasers. I think the Jewish space laser was Marjorie Taylor Greene, and we can we can discuss that later. But um, so Rupert put, gave a de- de- deposition, which has come out this week, in which he says, and he and he makes a really extraordinary. And I, I mean, I think we've discussed before. I used to know him quite well and work for him, so I'll just be totally open about that. He made he tried to make a distinction between commentators. And Fox News, because he knows that if he says Fox News endorsed the stolen election theory and the theory that um, that Dominion um, was was you know was part of a conspiracy, that he's stuffed. But so what he's saying is that the comment he he allowed the commentators to go on too long endorsing it, and that's Lou Dobbs who's barking mad, Maria Butteroma who's lost her mind since she was the um, money honey on CNBC a long time ago. Um, don't and don't even get me started on Tucker Carlson and that twerp sh- sh- um, 
Sean Hannity. And what's also come out is not only Rupert's um, sets, you know, his his remark is, I could have stopped them, but I didn't. And it was not a red-blue decision. It was a green decision. <laughs> I it was a decision about greenbacks, about money. Yeah, no, no, it wasn't you know, the so Green Party. You know, they're, they're very much a friend. It's come out also from the Fox chief uh, chief executive. Um, I think Rupert is the executive chairman of, of Fox Corporation. He could have made that call. They decided not to because they didn't want to disappoint the conservative audience and have the conservative audience go over to Newsmax, which is which might as well be called Newsmad, which is completely bonkers. But mm-hmm. it is a very interesting dilemma. And, of course, there's also depositions from Sean Hannity showing that he threatened um, Fox News reporters who were calling into question the mm-hmm. stolen election myth. And so that's where I think you're going to get this really intersection, really interesting intersection where which will undercut, cut away Rupert's distinction between commentators and news yes. people because yes. he was clearly bullying his own news mm. team. What's interesting about this, and I, I like to follow the whole Rupert thing, it's such a cracking story, and we've all watched Succession and all of that. Uh, and uh, I also reported on uh, News Corp in the mid-1990s and uh, uh, through questions at Mr Murdoch when he attended uh, the annual meeting that used to be in Adelaide every year. He's a fascinating and charming character and very savvy and obviously, you know, has made a huge uh, dent in the world. Um, but I just wanted to say, just imagine if at least half of our media in New Zealand was still yeah, owned think by Rupert, Rupert yep. Murdoch. So 2003, New Zealand accidentally dodged the biggest bullet ever because uh, at that point, <laughs> Rupert Murdoch just happened to need several hundred million dollars to expand his uh, network in Italy. And he'd taken one of uh, his best uh, executives away from his New Zealand operation to launch the operation in Italy and basically decided, oh, I don't care about New Zealand much at the moment. I'll just sell it. So he sold what was then called independent newspapers, which is then went into Fairfax and which is now stuff. And that, of course, includes the Christchurch Press, the Dominion Post, the Waikato Times and stuff itself, mm-hmm. not to mention a whole bunch of uh, um, community newspapers. And, you know, it's quite possible that New Zealand would be a different place mm. in the tone of how it, for example, covered COVID, um, how it's dealt with the yeah, government. Yeah, this course would be very different. Yeah. Yep. And, you know, it's, there's a series well, of accidents accidents that have gone on here to the point now where we have um, uh, stuff is is very independent of, um, you know, the, the usual suspects running mm. media companies. Mm. And uh, it, it it has made a difference in its its decisions about coverage of Māori and and also about uh, coverage of COVID and these science-based issues. So we dodged a bullet there. And just, just uh, I also love these alternative histories and the idea of um, uh, what is effectively... Oh, it's like stuff. Fatherland, isn't it? Oh, it's yeah, like yeah, yeah. Robert Harris's Fatherland. Yeah. Now, the last thing is... Well, no, there's is, two, no, 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 we've got two things. Because, oh, sure. you know, I don't want us to all be mean to Rupert because Rupert appears to have found love again. Again! And he's contemplating getting married for the fifth time, having, um, having told... Um, Jerry Hall that he you know by text that he was going to divorce her and then finding her and her lawyers on his on the uh on the steps of his of his private jet serving him with um with divorce papers but so Rupert was pictured this week and was oh, he's as talking about getting married to Anne Leslie Smith who is 66 and she's the widow of a country she's the Christian widow Christian evangelical Christian widow of a country music star called Chester Smith but 
I tell you what, the picture of 91-year-old Rupert Murdoch being helped out of the out of the sea in uh, Barbados by a glamorous woman in a bikini is something to be beheld. It I got is, a feeling that one didn't is, make it into the sun. It looks like Yoda or some sort of <laughs> ancient sea creature. Some sort of he looks like a, seal, a sort of a, 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 a barely walking coelacanth being dragged <laughs> out of a. Oh boy! But then the, the then there's the skateboarding dog story. Yes, go you know, we, and and I this is a pretty bloody gruesome one, but it's a doozy, which is uh, a story about about. Um, uh, a man who was who went missing on a on a um, on an all terrain motorbike on a beach, but a, or vehicle on a beach, being discovered inside a shark by his family, identifying uh, television pictures of a tat of a distinctive tattoo uh-huh. on a piece of skin inside a shark. This which, is why we um, should all get tattoos. Exactly. Well, it, that's exactly what I was. That's exactly what I was thinking. I could have, you know, Peter loves Bernard. Yep. And then, you know, everybody would know it when I was Name, eaten by the shark. Address, oh, email address. Speaking of being eaten by sharks, just well, <laughs> I am bloody terrified whenever I look at that website that the, that the uh, marine biologist has set up and tagged great whites down in um, Bowen Town um, near Waihee. You know, they've got names like Nigel and Gaylene and Daisy. <laughs> and they're bloody swimming up, swimming up and down the uh, down the east coast, sniffing, trying to sniff out f- surfers and people like me on their paddleboards. So you, just before you get on your paddleboard, you look at the app and you see whether that's exactly Nigel, what I do now. Nigel is Nigel, out Gaylene and Barry. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I just think I'm I'm very nervous about this. And so, so what you need to do I'm is getting a getting a property of Bernard Hickey tattooed on my do, bottom. Yeah, or or maybe just a tag. You know, yeah. one of those tags that you. Oh, like a sheep tag. Yeah, yeah, good your, idea. Your, yeah. I think actually, I've often thought that sheep tags could be a very, very stylish um, new accoutrement in the oh, sort yeah. of piercing, tattooy parts of Auckland. Yes, not no, that no. I know anything about that. No, Robert, have Thank you got you, a, have you got piercings and um... no, <laughs> no, <laughs> you don't clack when you walk. Good. <laughs> no, no. Um, but Rob, they... Rob, Robert, we've we've asked, uh, we've gone into um, uncomfortable places, and we really appreciate your t- your time looking no uh, fabulous as usual. Thank you. No, very much. I was just interested in the transition from uh, Rupert Murdoch to sharks. It was quite interesting. <laughs> Some <laughs> might say logical yeah, connection, seems, but I won't. Yeah. Yeah. I won't comment on that. <laughs> the master of the segway. And, well, and coelacanths. Ah, oh, yes. Uh, it's quite interesting. Uh, good. Yeah. Uh, Peter, thank you very much again. Lovely to see you. And thank, thank you to you. Robert. Uh, has been another episode of The Hoon. We'll be back again next Friday uh, for a a wild and wonderful uh, uh, um, romp around the world of geopolitics. I'm Bernard Hickey. A romp? Jesus, that's a, 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 what are we, the sun? <laughs> <laughs> pals, pals say Bernie, 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 tattooed girlfriend. Yeah, uh, tattooed babe. Yeah, no, 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 that, no, that marketing yeah. technique for yeah. the for the car. Yeah, yeah. That's that's enough of us. See uh, you. Thank you very much, bye, everyone. Thank you so much. Thanks, bye. everybody. Bye. Catch you. Bye. Cheers. Bye.